This is Hurt and Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice. Conversation based on the book Hurt with Fetters, hosted by Pastor Greg Smith and author Jason Karsh. This is a podcast for people who want to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. Well, welcome again to our podcast Hurt with Fetters. I'm Greg Smith, here with Jason Karch, and I'm a local pastor. Jason is a incarcerated, convicted felon, and he's written this book on the criminal justice system and how or what should a, a Christian view or take be upon issues of criminal justice in our culture, in our society, in our own lives. And today we're going to talk about stories. Jason, welcome. Well, I'm glad to be your pastor. You know, today we're starting to get into the nuts and bolts of this thing, and I'm, I'm excited about it. Right. And there is, a, there is a conflict of stories, and we're going to begin just by articulating maybe what those stories are. What's the overriding story that drives issues of criminal justice, and what is the story uh, from a biblical perspective, or what is God's story that a believer should be listening to? And we mentioned in the first episode this idea of worldviews. Yeah. And so I think narrative is just, these ideas of stories is just another way of capturing what we mean by worldviews. Again, it goes back to some story that describes for us origin, meaning, and purpose, right and wrong and destiny and there is some story that lends to us identity and drives how we live our lives and so i begin the chapter with bobby delgado's book the unmaking of a criminal mind but he also wrote a book called when bad boys turn good and in when bad boys turn good he really hones in on the effects of like the dehumanization of tdc how that shapes the identity of a person who is in prison so there is a particular story told about people in prison you know it's fed to the person who is in prison and so for bob when he served time down here as a kid spent several years got back into the world well he steps back into the world with a criminal identity now based on a story that had been told to him about who he was now how he's supposed to act how he's supposed to live and inevitably that led him right back to the penitentiary and it kind of harkens back to what we talked about in our first episode where just being in a place like this set someone up to come right back okay but to the story for just a second who's telling that story so you have bob delgado in prison and he comes out and he has this this view of himself and the world based upon the story that he's received right or that he's heard or that he has bought into or that he has lived but who basically convinced him that that was how, how do you how do you become convinced that this is my reality this is the story this is the one i'm in and i got i've got to act out my my role in this in this drama of life i guess maybe we're really talking about what is life maybe who told it to him it's stages that begins first and foremost with the legislator the legislator will say that uh, we have to be tough on crime that trickles down to the district court levels to where now a judge 
is in a position, a prosecutor is in position, if they want to be reelected to office, they have to punish crime in a harsh way. So whereas there might be a, a situation to where Bob could have received probation or some chance to offer restitution or these types of things, but they don't do that because they're in a position where they have to punish crime harshly. This is the story told to them. And so they punish him by sending him to prison. And then when he gets to prison, administrators of the prison began to enforce that story by creating in his mind that this is who you are. You're less than the people who have put you here. This is the type of person you are. This is how you act. This is how you respond. And because that's been fed to everybody in prison, there's a, a pressure on him to respond in a certain way from those that live around him. And now when he gets back into the world, here it is, he's set up for failure. It's the same way to where if you tell somebody that it's working at a job that their work is they're not a good worker their work is no good that they're stupid you tell somebody something long enough they begin to believe it and so i think there's stages in which the story is told and when you think about the tough on crime narrative within the confines of texas politics in in particular you know i had made some notes based on an, an article that i read about uh, william clements governor of Texas, mm -hmm. a two-time governor of Texas, and one of the largest prison units in Texas is Bill Clements unit up mm -hmm. there in Amarillo. And so Clements spent more money on his gubernatorial campaign than any governor in the history of Texas. He won, and he did something no other governor had ever done. He begins to lobby with sheriff's associations, you know, local sheriff's departments. He began to target sheriffs and the prosecutor's offices. So he's appealing to sheriffs and prosecutors, and he begins to craft a campaign based on a tough-on-crime narrative with harsher prison sentences for any types of crimes, even nonviolent crimes, because in the mind of the population of Texas, their system had been far too soft on crime. So he milks that and wins uh, the governor race, becomes the So do you feel like that he really believed that? I mean, is that, was there something nefarious about this or that he, well, no, I did don't someone think... just wake up one day and go, let's see, how can I get elected? Okay, here's these criminals that can't do anything to me, but here's these other people and I can get their money if I make them feel safer or something. I mean, I'm wondering what kind of narrative is shaping his mindset, I wonder. Well, I think I think it's a political thing for, for him. This is the way that I generate votes. It's irrelevant whether the story is true or not. Okay. And, and that emerges when he loses to Mark White. Now, Mark White wins the governor's race because the economy had taken a nosedive. So Mark White runs on the economic woes of the state. He, he wins the governor's seat. And now Clements back doors on the next race and shows how the prison system was in a crisis due to the Ruiz versus Estelle case, which resulted in the largest prison reforms in the history of this nation, not just the state. So all of these things are going on at the highest levels of Texas politics. So Mark White, to compensate, to address the issue, he creates a way for Texas prisons to not be overpopulated and begins to release nonviolent offenders in mass. And at the same time, crime rates in Texas had bottomed out. They're lower than they had been 
in 30 or 40 years, but several exposés were written in large newspapers in the state scaring people into this idea based on one particular case where somebody who had been released from prison had committed a rape. And so they used this one instance out of thousands of people who had been released from prison to scare people into thinking that this particular governor had become soft on crime and there needs to be harsher punishments for crime, stiffer penalties for crime. We cannot let these guys out of prison because this is what they do. And Clements, milking that same narrative again, wins the gubernatorial race uh, one more time. And so even though statistically it shows that just because you're releasing people, crime rates don't go up. They were actually lower than they had been for decades. But for some reason, we still got to crank up the penalties because these are the bad guys and we got to get them out of here. The narrative that gets votes. Okay, so Bill Clements, politician, and whether he cares about crime or criminals or victims, I suppose irrelevant, or whether we know that he, whether he does or not, who can know. But... He sees this as a way to get votes, and it becomes a way to get votes, or it is a way to get votes, because if you back up one step, the typical voter out there is believing the narrative that's being created by who? If you're having these stories about a just-released offender that goes out and rapes somebody, and so, oh my goodness, we need to lock everybody else up, right? If, if that, you know, or we can't let anybody else, uh, we can't let anybody out because they're going to go out and rape everybody. The emphasis there is it's irrelevant whether or not he cared. I mean, he may legitimately care about crime rates and all of that stuff there. There may be a, a legitimate concern there. For him to be able to do anything about that, he has to have the necessary votes to get into a position to where he can do it and it's irrelevant whether the story is true or not. I understand that. I and that. I emphasize that in the chapter. For the Christian, we have a narrative. We have a storyteller that tells the true story over and against these false narratives out there that shape people's identities, that order their lives. We have the true story. And for Christians, we have to get our mind around that so that we're not swept into the tide of these false narratives and begin acting and identifying in ways that are not in line with the biblical story. Okay, I want to get to that here in just a second, but the question that I'd have first, you know, so we talked about the narrative and maybe the criminal justice narrative and where it originates, I guess, maybe it's impossible to say, although it's something that comes out of culture or in culture. But just one question, because I, I did note here that, so Clements, governor, puts all these people in prison, even for nonviolent, right? Crime rate falls. Mark White comes in. He releases, you know, nonviolent offenders. Crime rate doesn't go back up, stays low. But is the reality then, is part of the narrative that is real, perhaps, that the more violent offenders you log up or for the longer drives the crime rate down? I mean, because it seems to me like there's kind of a, a dichotomy here or there's a uh, dissonance maybe that, you know, we're saying, wait, that doesn't really help, but maybe it does. How, I mean, I don't know. How well, does... well, when Clements was governor, the crime rates don't fall exponentially. They pretty much remain stable. As he's locking all these people up. As, even as he's locking all these people up and being more punitive and more harsh when it comes to penalties for crime. But when Mark White comes, tries to correct this 
crisis going on in Texas prisons in particular, he begins to release people, nonviolent offenders. Crime rates are falling. So why are they falling? Well, I don't know why they're falling, but what we do know is that harsher penalties for crime does not control crime rates. You can just look at statistically the way that capital punishment has been used and vetted in the United States. When the Supreme Court abolished the death penalty in the mid-1970s, murder rates didn't skyrocket. Murder rates actually fell for the next couple of years. But then when the death penalty is reinstituted, capital crimes rise. So capital punishment does not deter people from committing capital crimes. The institution of, of capital punishment is actually works alongside higher rates of capital crimes. So the narrative of tough on crime doesn't mitigate against criminal activity in any way. Now, I don't know what does. Statistics. Okay, so we're not saying what does or doesn't drive the crime rate. I, we're I just think, I think what, we need to make that clear. Yes, okay. we're, not, we're not talking about. What we're saying is, is that the story that they're telling is not true. It's not true. It is a false narrative that far too many people, far too many Christians in particular, buy into. Well, it's because it seems to be... Um, you know, logical, okay? You take criminals off the street, crime rate's going to go down. But that that's not how it you, works Or you out. take people, and I use the word criminal, you take people that are committing whatever crimes, crime rate ought to go down. But it doesn't. And so, okay, so why not? Well, and, you know, in the lawmakers' minds, I can't answer the question, but in the lawmakers' minds, that should be the question they ask. When they look at all the statistics, just because you have harsher penalties for criminal activity. You're locking up people for longer periods of time. That doesn't translate into lower crime rates. So they're, in their minds, it should say, well, we need to figure out something else, but it doesn't. They just continue to ride that same narrative. So I guess the, the question that comes to my mind at this point, and you know, it's something we've touched on before, and we're going to come back to time and time again, is the the purpose of uh, the criminal justice system. And basically what I'm hearing you say is that in the people who are making policy, the goal of the criminal justice system is to lower the crime rate, not necessarily to punish the offender or to rehabilitate the offender, unless that would theoretically fit into reducing the crime rate, right? There's, there's kind of a, a thought, I suppose, in some people's mind. A guy commits a crime, throw him in jail, throw away the key, and then you don't have to worry about it anymore, right? I mean, is, is the goal we're trying to run down the crime rate, or is it we're trying to do something else? I mean, Well, I think, I think ultimately what that does is it plays on people's fears. Because, you know, we talk a lot about Clements and his campaigns for the governor's office and then Mark White following that. Well, one of the things that when they vet Texas citizens, they seen the prison system as being too soft on crime. So Clements, he taps into that. But what they also saw was that the system was failing to rehabilitate criminals. And there's an expectation of the citizenry for the system to not only punish criminals, but to rehabilitate them. And there's an expectation, too, that through this punishment and rehabilitation, crime rates will fall. But that's not how it works out. So although the narrative is being fed, 
to a population. There is an expectation of the people that is not being met. And I don't that think expectation be rehabilitation. Rehabilitation and lower crime rates. Is there anything happening to change that narrative or to, or to, or to fulfill the narrative, I guess, that, that we're locking these guys up to lower the crime rate and when we turn them back out, they're going to be different because, and so the crime there is not going to go back up because this guy is getting out, right? I mean, that should be the expectation, and I think in 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 many ways it is the expectation, but nobody but nobody is pausing to ask: Is this a reality? Is this really what is going on? Is this really what? Our, our tax dollars are being spent on. There's an expectation of people when they send their children to public schools of what type of education they're getting. And they hold lawmakers accountable for what type of education their children are getting in school. Well, in the same way, they're not holding lawmakers accountable for how the prison system is being ran in reference to rehabilitation. So the default reaction to that is, hey, we're just going to keep them as long as we can to prevent anything bad from happening when the time comes for these guys to get out of here. Norman Mailer wrote the Executioner's Song, which was a, a popular retelling of Gary Gilmore's story. I think they made a movie out of that where Tommy Lee Jones plays Gary Gilmore. Well, in the Executioner's Song, Mailer references Gilmore as making this statement after being locked up for 12 years, getting out and committing the robbery and the murder that he did. He said, if a system that is designed to rehabilitate people can't fix a man in 12 years, there's something wrong with that. You know, somebody needs to rethink what is going on here. And I think in reference to the criminal justice narrative, Christians are in a position to take the narrative that we should identify with, that should order our lives. I think that can speak to these issues in a powerful way. If the Christian narrative or for a child of God or a person of faith, right, to come to this issue and has a different narrative. First of all, let's reiterate what exactly, or let's go back over, what exactly is the Christian narrative when it comes to you know, the Christian worldview or, or criminal justice? I think, you know, a few days ago, you and I were just kind of throwing some ideas around, and I was sharing with you that I <clears throat> was rereading G.K. Chesterton's orthodoxy. And so Chesterton, when he talks about competing philosophies or worldviews or these stories, he says that in, in terms of discovery, how we discover the story that we identify with that orders our lives, he says the Christian philosophy is not something that he made up. The Christian worldview or the Christian narrative is not something he made up, but it's something that made him. And once he realized that a story is being told, then there has to be some storyteller. And so for the Christian, that story begins with a God, with a power to create. And not just a power to create, but to create us in a specific way, in his image and in his likeness. That is a starting point for the Christian narrative when it comes to how we relate to one another, how we deal with one another, even in our offenses of one another, we each possess an equal value, an inherent dignity and value that gives us an equal worth so that we have to treat one another in a particular way. In contrast to that, the current criminal justice narrative would try to undermine that or subvert it in some way by elevating some people above other people and and grant allowances for treating 
some class of people in a different way than we would the good people. Or we basically whatever. have to dehumanize. Yeah, and when you think someone. about criminal activity, and I end up getting into this later on when we have the reflection on the fall of how sin entered into the world, what sin actually is. For somebody who's committing a criminal act, they're fundamentally doing something to somebody in a way that undermines that person's value, dignity, basic and humanity. Worth. Yeah, it undervalues their their. But basic does it humanity. undermine also his basic or the offender? Or I it? think so. I think so. So when you look at how the current criminal justice narrative differentiates between good people and bad people, in essence, the same thing is taking place in that as is taking place in criminal activity, just in a, a different way. Sure. So it begins, the biblical narrative or the Christian story begins with our creation in the image and likeness of God that by virtue of that, we have an equal dignity and value, an equal worth that does not allow for us to treat one another in ways that undermine that. And so that's where it begins. And of course, it continues to work itself out in how sin enters into the world and how by becoming sinners, we have a different kind of equality now. And we have to try to fight against the selfishness of sin and how God even provides a way to restore a relationship of his creation back to himself and by that restoring community and relationship with one another. And so that's the framework of the story that we have to operate from when we're thinking about issues of criminal justice, how crime is punished, all of that. Okay, so so basically then as a child of God, I've got to determine which story I'm going to I'm going to hold to or that I'm going to allow to to inform my understanding or my beliefs, right? Since the biblical narrative is we are all created in the image of God, we all have basic value and worth based upon that reality and that reality alone because we bear God's image and everyone is a unique creation of God. But I commit a crime and so I have undermined that image. I have marred that image to some degree, I suppose. And I, then I get treated that way. Am I violating the narrative or the Word of God by doing that, I guess, from a, the criminal justice side, I suppose? Because sin is a reality. Because we treat each other in criminal ways, I think there's a necessary thing for punishing crime. And I, and I think prison is so embedded in American uh, society. You know, you have people who want to abolish I don't see, that's not feasible. You know, so there, there's a well, part... Well, wait a minute. The difference between being not feasible and being not right. I mean, so you're not arguing for the abolition of prison, but you're not arguing for it based on the fact that there's a better way to do what we're talking about you're not arguing for it based upon the fact that it's just not feasible. I mean, because we've got so many people locked up, we can't just turn everybody out, right? I yeah, well, it's, it's, it's so ingrained in the American economy. I mean, think about would you, in just the state of Texas. You know, the Texas prison system is the largest state agency in the state. Okay. but that, but so to, to me, So to just take that out, that's not, that's not feasible. To me, that Ed, begs the question. I mean, uh, but if you have to, if you go back to the Christian narrative, the answer or the question has to be, okay, so if, if what we're doing is not working, so locking people up does not, or, or it violates the, you know, the basic humanity of the individual. So whether it's functional or not is beside the point. What 
should we do or how can we address issues of justice in our society? Well, so the question is, given the biblical narrative calls for the punishment of sin, I think that the way that we address criminal acts, the punishment of those acts that result in prison sentences, I think that that at some point becomes a necessary reality in the world that we live in. However, how we do that, prison is the punishment. It shouldn't be punishing. The fact that somebody is separated from society, separated from others because of something they did, separated from their family, from their loved ones, having their freedom taken from them in that way, that is the punishment. But coming down here and being subjected to what works itself out as, as punishing the dehumanization aspects of this, the undermining of a person's basic humanity, those types of issues are what has to be corrected. Those are the things that the biblical narrative can speak against. Not necessarily the reality of prisons or the punishing of crime that works itself out in prison sentences. I think where we are, that's part of the world that we live in. And until Jesus comes back, I think prisons will probably be part of society, particularly in America. So to understand what you're saying here, Jason, an example. If I went out and committed a murder, you would not argue that, that I didn't deserve to go to prison, to be separated from my family. That would be the punishment, right? Yes. So we punish crime that way. And maybe for a year, maybe for 70 years, maybe for 100 years, whatever. Somehow, some way, somebody's got to figure out what is or isn't just or unjust punishment for whatever particular crime is. If Maybe if I didn't kill him, I just robbed him. Or maybe I shot him and he's left as an invalid. You know, maybe those different crimes might be punished with different sentences, which is theoretically the way things are supposed to work today, I suppose. So so you wouldn't be arguing that, that someone who did something like that doesn't need to be separated from their family in an institution like a prison. But what you are saying is is that the way they're treated in that prison is ultimately the issue. Exactly. Okay. But just locking somebody up in a cage, there's a dehumanization element or dehumanizing element in that, right? So I guess I'm wondering, are there some nuances or degrees? Uh, and maybe the question would be, okay, if you could change this institution, change it in some way in terms of, of what an ex the experience would look like. I commit a crime, I get sent to prison justly. Let's just talk about justly for just a second. I get sent to prison justly for the for my actions. What should that look like from a Christian perspective or worldview? We'll just use your same example. Let's just say, you know, you're in a position to where now you have you've caught a murder case and you're going through the process of this criminal act being prosecuted in the courts. You go into a district court you have the prosecutor, you have your attorney, the judge hands down a sentence. So let's say you are being sentenced to prison for 25 years. Okay. What is the sentiment that goes through your mind when you receive a 25-year prison sentence? Is the immediate thought there is, okay, I'm receiving a just punishment 
for my crime by being separated from society. Now I can go to a place to where maybe I can redeem myself. Maybe I can get some help for whatever led me to do that in the first place. Maybe to where I can get in a position to give back to society in a positive way. I mean, you can never fully offer restitution for a murder, obviously. But is there any way you can be restored back to society? There is nobody. I I can't think of a single person who is sentenced to prison when that thought goes through their mind. So what is the thought? The thought is... I'm fixing to go to a very bad place. They're going to kill me. To where I'm going to have to find a way to get in and survive. I'm being tossed into a jungle, basically, that is red in tooth and claw, where only the strongest survive. And I have to figure out a way to play to my strength so that I may be able to live down this 25-year sentence and get back into society. Whether I'm fixed or not, whether I ever get a chance to, to be restored, any of that, none of that's in my mind when a person is sent to a place like this. And that has to be uh, fixed. Because what ends up happening is it goes back to what we talked about in our first episode. Somebody comes down here with the 25-year sentence. They fit in. They get it like they live. Try to survive. And then they're turned back into society times and again. Worse than they were before they ever came here. And I think that violates the expectation of the citizenry who have also bought into this narrative sure. that is being promoted. But it not only violates the expectation of the citizenry, it violates the the narrative of criminal justice from a biblical or Christian worldview, which would be it must be redemptive or restorative in some way. Exactly. So we're putting two different stories side by side. We've got a, a secular narrative of criminal justice that basically is not true, but that most people buy into, which is get these guys off the street, get the offender off the street. The bad people. The bad people. Get the bad people off the street, and the uh, crime rate will go down. We'll be safer. While they're in prison, they will be rehabilitated so that when they come out, they'll never do that again. There might be some that argue that then the worse the experience is in prison, the more likely that someone who has gone through that would say, man, I never want to go back to that again. So I'm not going to go back out and continue doing whatever it was I was doing that society said I need to be locked up for. I'm going to quit doing that. And again, we're talking about the, I'm talking about the just punishment. We'll get to issues of what is just and what is unjust. But if I'm justly sent to prison for some crime that I commit, if it is a terrible, you know, bad, bad, bad experience based upon, you know, the way I'm treated, the way not just by the prison staff, but by the other guys who are locked up. When I get out, the thought would be, my mindset would be, I don't ever want to go back to that place. So I'm going to be a good person. Would you just speak to that? Is there any rehabilitative or restorative virtue in that, what I just articulated, that prison is so bad, I don't ever want to go back? Is there anything redemptive in The invocation of terror? No, I don't think so. I think that if somebody has to live their life day by day under the aegis of fear, there's nothing redemptive or restorative about that. Nobody's ever really free to be who they can be if they're laboring under the aegis of fear. That's not healthy. 
So you may see that as a victory for somebody who comes to a place like this, gets out, never commits another crime because they're so afraid to ever come back to this place. Well, is that the best we can do as humans? Sure. You know, so I think there has to be another way okay. uh, to do things. Fair enough. Just a, another thought along that line might be, or just to add to that, if we are all fallen apart from Jesus Christ, there is a tendency, I think, on the part of the average sinner, if you will, that I'm not going to get caught anyway, or I'm not going to have to pay the ultimate penalty for my crime. I mean, why do I keep on sinning if I know that hell is a reality? I guess, so the fear of hell doesn't necessarily turn people to God. No. I mean, do you see the connection here? I mean, it would be the same if I was afraid of going back to prison, but I got out. That might not necessarily keep me from doing anything to go back because I'm not thinking I'm going to get caught anyway or ultimately have to pay maybe anyway. I mean, because theologically, most people, a lot of people anyway, go through life and just continue to live their life apart from God thinking there's never going to be a judgment day. R.G. Lee's famous sermon was payday someday. In due time, their foot shall slide. Sooner or later... The bill comes due. There are no free lunches. There's no free lunches, yeah. So so back to the issue of two narratives. So you write in your book here that the Christian view or the Christian story is the better narrative. And this is where believers should fall out on because it is the true story. It is the true narrative. Would you speak to that for just a second? Ultimately, I make the statement that this is a, you know, it's a conflict of narratives. And not only is the Christian story the better story, it's the true story. I think it's the story that corresponds best to reality. You know, again, we, you know, we go back to the narrative of criminal justice that promotes this story that we have to be harsh in terms of how we deal with crime and all of that. And that should uh, subsequently translate into lower crime rates and all of this stuff. Well, it doesn't. So that should communicate to us that the story that's being told to us is, by virtue of that at least, false. Whereas when we follow the Christian narrative, we're following actually the true story that best corresponds to reality like we experience it well and uh, you know just a thought i had as you were talking there is that what that means is for me truly to understand it or even speak to it i've got to know what takes place inside an institution like this prison so if i drive by it every day and go eh, i don't know what's happening in there certainly but i think that whatever's happening the ones who are locked up in there they're getting what they deserve and so i don't even allow maybe either narrative to even speak to me because I, I don't honestly know. And maybe part of what you're you would be arguing is is that people like me or you know pastors ought to be speaking on these issues or others who would come to the place where they could understand what's taking place, they could speak to the issue. They could speak to the narrative and the reality or that which the one that is true versus that which is false, right? Exactly. And you think about an example of this, I remember being in prison in a day room. Now, I'm not thinking like a Christian. I'm absolutely clueless about the things of God, all of this. But I remember seeing on the news in 1998 where you had all of this stuff going on in the media with the execution of Carla Faye Tucker. 
And, you know, there's the first time that the state of Texas would execute a woman in almost 100 years. Now, the thing that makes that interesting is Carla Faye Tucker's story, you know, her radical conversion to Christianity and the way that she began to affect the people there on death row with her, the volunteers that came in, the staff at the prison, from the average guard to the chaplain to the senior warden of the unit, just the way that Christ had transformed her life, the way that that was affecting the people around her, it began to generate a lot of attention. You have this on the one hand, and on the other hand, you have a very vocal Christian governor in George Bush. And so now people begin to wonder where, okay, what is going? Is he really going to pull the trigger on her execution? He has the power in the position he's in to commute her sentence to life. She had already signed waivers to the Board of Pardons and Paroles that she would remain in prison for the rest of her natural life so that she could give back, that she could help, that she could continue to influence people in a positive way. You have personalities as influential as the Pope at the time calling for Governor Bush to commute her sentence to life in and prison. And he did not. And he didn't do that. And why? I think it's because he was beholden to the current narrative of criminal justice that to maintain his position, he has to hold fast to this idea that you have to be harsh in the way that you punish crime. And he would eventually ride that narrative to the White House, whereas he could have very easily embraced the Christian narrative, seen the reality of Christ in her life. You know, the people that when she was transferred to the Huntsville unit, one of the captains over the execution team, you know, he's a Lutheran pastor right outside of Houston. He wrote a book and talks about how her execution affected him personally as a believer in Jesus Christ. Now, I'm not saying that capital punishment is right or wrong. That's not the issue. I'm saying that people who confess Jesus Christ are in a position to where they have to decide which narrative they're going to follow, even at the highest levels of government. Of course. And if I decide, as Governor Bush did at the time, that I'm going to follow the public narrative or the or the secular narrative, if you will, you know, I'm, I'm back to the question, why? I mean, is it because maybe I haven't entered into the life that this narrative is affecting? I mean, obviously, he never went down to that prison and visited with her. And maybe politically, he felt like, because the majority of the people buy into this other narrative, if I go with the Christian narrative here, you know, I'll lose my position or I won't get reelected or what. I can't do what's right or what is biblical or what's godly or what is human because I might not get elected or something. Yeah, I think that is a key issue too because as a professed believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, what voices were speaking into his life for the issue of whether or not to commute her sentence or to go forward with the execution because you can look at the night of her execution there was a huge demonstration stage or it may be the night before a huge demonstration was staged where you had multiple media outlets turn out because in everybody's mind this was going to be a huge thing and relatively few Christians came out to support rehabilitation restitution restoration reconciliation they didn't come out and really support that That's why I'm saying there is a conflict of narratives here. And until the Christian gets his mind around, we have a voice in this. 
and we need to speak. We need to speak it. We need mm-hmm. to speak. All right. Jason, thank you for time today, and thank you, listeners, for joining us, and we will see you next week. God bless. Hopefully this has been encouraging while also challenging you to think through these issues in a new or more concrete way. Listen next time for our conversation on further theological reflections on criminal justice. Thanks for listening to Hurt with Feathers, a podcast that helps us to see ways in which Christian theology ought to shape our understanding of the current narrative of criminal justice. The book Hurt with Fetters, Theological Reflections on Criminal Justice is available at Amazon.com.